Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Can you not? If you don't listen to me, how would you be a This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Words are things. We hold these truths to be, be self-evident. Can't about calling people out of their names. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it had ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some man you just can't reach. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, you're not entertained. That's a powerful new force. Just not while you were here. So there was some sketchy stuff going down in colonial America back in the early 1700s. And you'd think, you know, it's street crime and whatnot, and, you know, it's a rough, it's a rough, it's a rough place. It's the new world still, and, you know, frontier, all, all the stuff that you read about and you get kind of the half-truths for. But one of the places that there was the worst offenders... Then, as in, you know, now, as we're all fairly aware of, is those in charge tended to be, act like they weren't, they weren't accountable to the same laws they enforce. And the, the number one offender in New York at this particular time was the governor, Governor William Cosby. It didn't matter if we were talking about rigging elections, if we're talking about, you know, stacking courts with his own cronies, you know, to ensure that he always gets his way. Just, dude was just a chronic, corrupt politician. But the thing about it is he could get away with it until 1733. 
when Cosby met his match, and he met his match by really unlikely places. This German immigrant, he's a 38-year-old German immigrant named John Peter Zinger. And Mr. Zinger had a small, he owned a printing press that, that produced this small newspaper called the New York Weekly Journal. And Zinger is just a common dude, had had enough with the corruption, and, you know, he was politically motivated, politically active, and agreed to print some articles um, in the paper accusing the governor of, you know, doing a bunch of sketchy stuff. He didn't write them, he just, he printed them, they're anonymous. Um, but he printed them just the same. Which incidentally was a crime in itself. Because colonial America was not post-U.S. constitutional America. Different rules applied, and specifically one of the rules that applied is they had these things called seditious libel laws, which made it illegal to criticize the government. You could not criticize the government. It didn't matter if you're talking about the King of England, a local magistrate, or the governor of New York. Well, Singer did just that. And as a result, uh, Cosby threw him in jail. And he was demanding that he, like, who wrote these articles? And But Zinger, Zinger been a, doing what he ought to be doing and, and kind of set a tone for what journalists are supposed to do today. And you don't reveal your sources. Like, if you have a confidential source, you don't give them up. If they throw you in jail, you still don't give them up. That's the rule. And so for 10 months, uh, Zinger sat in jail in New York. You know, there's a dude sitting alone in a jail cell. And he, he, in a jail cell in 1733 is not the luxury accommodations of a jail cell of the modern day. So it sucked pretty bad. But his wife kept the, uh, the press going. She kept the newspaper going. And just kept on rocking, rocking the free world. Uh, and saved her husband's bacon because it, when they first tried to put a, a jury together for his trial, Cosby did what Cosby always did and tried to stack it with a bunch of his folks. So he was guaranteed to get a guilty verdict. But she called him out in the paper and lo and behold, managed to get a new jury selected. It was an actual jury of his peers. So the trial starts. Dude's been sitting in, he's been sitting in jail for 10 months for criticizing the governor for doing something the governor actually did. That's, this is the important part. Dude was guilty. Zanger was guilty for printing it. He never argued that he wasn't, or more specifically, um, he hired a Philadelphia attorney named Andrew Hamilton, not Alexander Hamilton. Andrew Hamilton. Uh, and, and Hamilton made just this really curious and brilliant move. He turned the tables on the prosecution during the trial by demanding that they prove that the governor was innocent of the charges. Like, look, you've thrown this man in jail for saying that the governor did all these terrible things. 
You know, if the governor's in, is 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 innocent, then fine. Show us. Well, see, they couldn't do that because dude was guilty, and so, lo and behold, um, he followed that up. It's like, look, if you can't show me that the man's innocent, and he's obviously not innocent, then what you're saying is that it's illegal to tell the truth. And so, how in the world? In any sane wor- in any sane world, and I'm paraphrasing here, like, should it be illegal to tell the truth? Like, no, no. Truth is one thing that we should all agree on. Like, there should never be a rule saying that you can't be honest. There should never be a law making it illegal to tell the truth. And I'll be damned if the jury didn't come back 10 minutes later and said, you know what? You're right, Bubba. And Zinger, the 38-year-old German immigrant, this case set the precedent for what would later become a uh, addition to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law representing or Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. To take that a step further, the founding fathers not only made it legal, they made journalism the single the only single commercial profession that is constitutionally protected. A journalist has constitutional protection to tell the truth and most specifically to be able to criticize the government, whether it's the local government or the federal government. Local, state, federal, doesn't matter. They have an absolute, not only a right to, but it's they really have a mandate uh, because what the press was set up as an unofficial fourth estate of government. So you've got the three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive, right? They all reside within the context of the government itself. But then you have the press, which is the unofficial fourth estate that's hanging off to the side. It's not under the influence of the other three in theory. It's not supposed to be anyway. And they're supposed to be the watchful eye, you know, shining a light in the darkness. So the folks in charge can't pull a fast one over on the folks at home. The average dude, you know, running the printing press or working in a wherever. And so that's the way it started in this country. Um, And so they're supposed to maintain this oppositional presence. Um, which admittedly, I'll be, the, I'll be the first to tell you, a lot of them do a pretty terrible job of, uh, and this hasn't been the first time it goes in cycles. Sometimes they, they're really good. And then sometimes they're really terrible right now. I would argue that, um, there's a lot of really terrible, um, and I can get into why later I mean, I'll, I'll do that later. Um, But the fact is, um, you want you want a functional government, you need a functional press. 
I was raised to have respect for every color and creed. I was taught that everyone should at least give what they need. If that meant that one percent had to cap their greed, that was good enough for my daddy, and that's good enough for me. So here's to Woody Guthrie singing this land was made for you and me. Here's to old Woody Guthrie's fascist killing machine. Here's to outlaws with a righteous cause fighting for a right to breathe. If you're kneeling on my brother's neck, brother, you kneel on me. Like a screaming silver bullet or a bully on the schoolyard. But the freedom that we're standing for will be for everyone who fight the fight for human rights and win without a gun. I was taught the KKK and the Nazis were all gone. Now I know that some things that I was taught were just plain wrong. All they did was change their clothes and country and their song. I'll be damned if I'm on a stand at Racist cops armed with the right to kill. Here's all these things in political games. Dying with the people's voice. If we stand up proud and speak up loud, someday we'll have a choice. myself if anger ever raised my hand but i was taught to love my neighbor just as fiercely as i can and i hope to raise my children to rise up and take a stand so here's to shit storms and broken norms paranoia and greed raining down upon the ground to fertilize our seeds here's to high hopes and counted votes giving us room to breathe if you're kneeling on my brother's neck motherfucker You know, there's there's really nothing more American than a protest song. Uh, I stumbled across that band um, last the last um, podcast episode. I played one, the Gasoline Lollipops. I don't know. That was I don't know how big of a following they are. It was just one of those um, recommended. You know, you listen to a streaming service. Um, and you get through with your playlist and it just keeps playing other stuff like hey I think you'll like this and and I played one of their other songs that I have yet to play and then this one stumbled across my and I thought that's appropriate I don't yeah probably some of you loved it some of you like got butt hurt um that's alright that's I mean that's that's what's supposed to happen remember when I said in the last one is like 
part of this whole education thing is, is being willing to get challenged. And so sometimes you just kind of get, um, you got a bit hand, you got to, you got to be able to hold something in your hand that may challenge you. Um, you know, you don't have to take it personally. You just like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold this idea in my hand. I'm going to try to be empathetic and sort of see it from the perspective of <clears throat> the, you know, whoever came up with it. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if you're, you can legitimately do that for anything. And like, like, God help me, but you know, you could, you can hold the ideology of a Nazi in your hand and go, all right, how do I, how do I try to understand this? It's just a problem. You don't have to like, oh, I, oh, I see. Uh, they've got some good points. No, you don't have to do that. No. But if you approach it from the perspective of like, all right, let's reverse en- engineer this. Like, here's the, here's this ideology that's come about. Let's reverse engineer it and try to figure out like, how did it get here? Um, there's a, there's a lot of value in just reverse engineering stuff and kind of thinking about, all right, this is where it is. And so let's, let's work our way backwards and kind of see how we got here and let's just follow the, the breadcrumbs backwards. Uh, and so kind of, that's what I'm, I'm doing here. I'm trying, I'm also trying to get my sound right for whatever reason. Like when I record this, the way it sounds when I record it is not the way it's sounding when I play it back. So I'm trying to make sure. That little first bit where the whole John Peter Zinger thing, I swear to you, I worked on that for four hours this morning. I would record it one way, and then I would hate it, and then I would record it another way, and then I would hate it. And it's at first, I just scripted it all out. Like, I'm, I'm going to make this slick and read it and, you know, and practice it, read it, be very broadcasty with it and or, you know, like I'm, you're listening to a slickly produced podcast and I just hated it. Like I don't know, it's part of it you just hate your own voice. Part of it is the sort of unnatural rhythm that sometimes comes with re- reading and for me, I legitimately probably recorded it a dozen times and deleted it. And then finally I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to tell the story. Like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to do it more like I would do it in class and not, I'm I'm not going to polish this thing. I'm not going to do a narration. I'm just going to tell a story. So, and then I did it and I was like, I, okay, that's, that sounds more natural. Um, because you do things like when you're narrating trying to get everything super smooth and then you can hear yourself breathing and swallowing. And I know you can hear me in any way, but what do you do? And I swallowed immediately after saying that. Anyway, so I recorded it just telling the story and I was like, oh, that's so much better. And then I went back and it's like, oh, it's way overmodulated. And so the sound quality is terrible. So I had to delete it again and retell it again. But I know the story much better better now um that's the way it works sometimes you just gotta I, I would i was applying a principle i would tell my students all the time when they're when they're creating 
uh, multimedia stuff, whether it's video packages or whatever, I'm like, if you have to convince yourself that it's good enough, that's probably not good enough. And so I was like, yep. Are you telling yourself it's good enough? And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. All right, delete it. Do it again. And then delete, delete, delete. So here we are back to this. So what I thought I would do for the remainder of this episode, we're at 20 minutes. And this is the episode I intended to record yesterday. Because it's, I don't know, I'm probably not going to publish this today. I'll schedule it out, but. The last one I tried to do, this is the one. It, this is what it was, and um, lo and behold, it's just. Um, I'll just reschedule it. So what I thought today, um, there's a few things I want to cover, and I'm and I'm trying not to just combine too many things into one, so I can kind of break them down. Uh, I want to do a history of communication, kind of how we got to where we are from a technology standpoint, like starting. The history of sort of like you know oral communication. I mean you know two thousand years ago to you know smartphones and social media. Um, and it's tempting to try to combine that with this, but the two different things. And I think one of the, one of the things, especially since we're talking specifically about journalism today, I want to talk first about the history of newspapers. Um, let me touch a little bit on the broadcast side, um, but I think I want to do that as its own thing too. Um, if you were taking my, you know, the class, it would be two completely different chapters. So there's plenty of content for each of them. I just want to make sure it's palatable enough for someone to sit at home and listen to. Um, and there goes a dude in a truck with pipes, and so it goes. So it goes. There was a book I read recently, and they were constantly saying "So it goes." I think it was a Hemingway book. <clears throat> I don't remember, but I mean, it was just every time they would, they'd be like, "So it goes, so it goes." By the way, as I'm doing these things, if anybody out there like has questions and you want me to like try to tackle, throw my way. You know, you may derail a podcast like you know, happened yesterday, and I just go off on an hour-long tangent on living life. Um, but, you know, if you've got specific questions about journalism, media, um, technology itself, ask. I will tell you if I, if, I, if I have an answer, I will tell you. If I don't have an answer, I will tell you that too. I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit ignorance. But today, what I want to specifically jump into is um, newspapers and the, sort of the history of them. So newspapers have been around a, a while. Um, started over in your at your Europe, Europe, uh, in Italy specifically. Uh, they there were these little papers. <clears throat> um, in the 1600s, that they would sell for a small coin called a gazetta and that gazetta is where we now get like if you are in Arkansas and you buy the Democrat Gazette that's where that name comes from originates from so the next time you find yourself on Jeopardy and they're like where does the term gazetta come from uh, whoever happens to be the host now 
You're like, well, not Alex. It is uh, by, the question is, uh, what were 1640s Italian papers sold for a small gold coin called a Gazetta? And so that's where it was. That was a really dumb thing to say. So anyway, um, that was Europe. So when it comes to uh, these United States, um, the first of pre-United States, going back to colonial stuff, pre, and this we're going back before Mr. Zinger, in Boston, Boston, there's a guy named Benjamin Harris, and he published... Uh, America's very first newspaper in 1690 called Public Occurrences. And Public Occurrences lasted exactly one issue. Because guess what? He accused the King of France of sleeping with his son's wife. Which, again, is probably true. Um, but, you know, again, going back to the seditious libel laws that we've already discussed, that paper got shut down. You know, and it's not that they would just shut the paper down. They would also trash all the equipment. It was, you know, they were, they were good, wholesome people. They were good people. Good, good people. Anyway, so what happened is time rolls along. And early on, you had to be, if you even wanted to print something, you had to, you had to get a license um, to print. And, you know, that, that hung around for a while but then the licensing laws got replaced by the seditious libel laws, which made it illegal to print anything derogatory or inflammatory about the government, which we have already discussed. Um, so the other thing that would happen is, remember, literacy rates aren't awesome at this particular point in time. And, you know, newspapers weren't exactly uh, cheap to produce or cheap to sell. And so very often they were too expensive just kind of for the average person to justify spending the money on them. And so, well, you know, the, the wealthier folks in the community or whatnot or somebody who's literate and a little extra change, they'd often buy these things and, uh, you know, they would hang out in a pub or, you know, wherever the kind of the local meeting house was. And, you know, then they would read what was to the, you know, everybody else there. They were kind of the entertainment, but they also became what you would call, consider an opinion leader. So this is a person that would show up, they would be able to read this stuff, and then they would, you know, and sometimes they would try to unpack what it meant and explain. And so these became opinion leaders. Now, the thing to also remember um, is that this is a point that it wasn't, we weren't really established journalism. These were print shops. These were printing presses. Um, and printing presses do what printing presses still do is they're like, all right, we're a for-profit company. What we need to do is sell papers. And so, you know, they would very often just print whatever they thought could sell. There was really no standard for accuracy and truthfulness. Um, it was just, you know, fill space, you know, cartoons and pictures and whatever else we thought you know might be a little scandalous and there goes another dude in a pickup truck all right well then 17 you know in 1730 1735 is when actually the trial of john peter zinger comes around um and so we've already established that we establish um 
that that trial and the verdict, the not guilty verdict, um, set the standard for what was going to be added to the um, part of the First Amendment of the U.S. You know, the other parts, you know, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of press, going hand in hand together. So you, sh- a free person, should be able to be able to speak their mind, speak critically of the government, and um, not suffer consequences from that and there should also be an industry the press that is charged with you know also being able to not just say it but write it put it in the written word word and so in the early days though again we had we had different kinds of newspapers out there you had mercantile press which is was basically a business paper it was they were geared toward whatever was you know the markets were at that particular point um and they were some of the first folks to cry foul on British commercial restraints designed to keep colonies dependent on England for manufactured goods, which I find this incredibly fascinating. So the thing at that point is, so we had growing, we've got tons of natural resources coming from the New World, the America, whatever the Americas, whatever you want to call it, uh, the colonies. And so we'll say cotton. Uh, cotton was a huge thing coming out of here. Um, tobacco, whatever whatever the thing is, but cotton is speci- specifically. There were rules in place that said, all right, you can grow cotton there, and we're going to establish these uh, cotton plantations there, but you can't do anything with it. You can't turn it into cloth. You can't make shirts with it. And so what they would have to do is export those natural resources. They would have to export the cotton back to Europe. And there in you know, London, that's when it would go to the textile mills, get turned into cloth, and clothes and whatever else, the latest French fashions. And then it would get sent back at a greatly enhanced price. And, you know, the local businesses were like, uh, you know, we could do all that here, right? We don't have to send it there. And we're actually losing money by doing that. And we're causing, you know, England to profit when it should be, you know, our folks. Which, ironically, is the exact same argument we have today, except it's not a government that is exporting all the natural resources to other countries. It's the business class and the corporate class they're like hey it's cheaper to send it to vietnam or china or wherever wherever it happens to be it's cheaper to send it over there and but again same dilemma different era um i'm not going to go down that road but i just you know you know that whole line about you know those who you know forget history are bound to repeat it yeah well here we are well, the other thing that came, comes around, along uh, is we'd had the, the French-Indian War. And Britain had funded a lot of that. And one of the ways that they wanted to uh, repay the coffers uh, used for that war is they enacted the Stamp Act. And the Stamp Act levied a one-cent tax on every printed document. Now, there was... There was this is done for twofold. One, it was to replenish money spent on a war. 
And two is also done as a means to tamp down on um, the papers and, you know, things that seemed critical. Um, and so you keep people from talking, you keep them from the papers from printing. Then, you know, you keep order. You keep you keep the, the peasants in line, I suppose. Well, that didn't go over well. Because I don't know if you've noticed that, but Americans are um, a little bit cantankerous about things like freedom and, by God, you're not going to take, you know, whatever away from me. Um, so that's when everything sort of hits the fan. And um, as it so happens... We're rolling into the, you know, mid-1700s at this point, mid to starting to get closer to 1776. And there's a few of these folks that we know as founding fathers who actually, you know, they they were neck deep in the printing industry. One of them, everybody knows, or actually, you know, both of them. Paul Revere was actually one of them. So if you look at, um, there's, there's a pretty famous cartoon painting of the Boston Massacre. Um, just Google Boston Massacre and look for a picture of of it's a painting. It's a cart. It's a very cart, kind of cartoonish of a bunch of British redcoats firing into just a helpless crowd. And if you notice, who actually um was the, uh, the the artist behind all that or the engraver and printed and sold by there's a little there's a little um, bit at the bottom of the photo sold by Paul Revere Paul Revere actually was in the newspaper business he and you know and again remember when I said like these guys would they wanted to sell papers and so if you've studied that particular moment the Boston Massacre not so much massacre, a little bit, a little bit more of you know a mob attacking a group of soldiers and the kind of soldiers shooting their way out of it, which you know they were armed, uh, and the colonists weren't. But it wasn't just sort of like they just sort of casually walked in and started shooting at people. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is that Parvier printed this thing, gets people stirred up. And 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 it's, they're getting them stirred up by design. Um, then you've got good old Ben Franklin, uh, who had uh, he, he had his own financial reasons to stir things up because he also happened to own America's first newspaper chain. It wasn't he just owned one; he owned several. You know, because he it's 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 pretty well known that he worked in a print shop growing up and worked for his brother and. And he ended up starting his own, and then, well, and he became Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin's got a really interesting history. But he had financial interest in selling papers and getting stuff stirred up. And I'm not saying that these guys didn't have honest patriotic intentions as well. I'm just saying that might have not been entirely their motivation, at least in the beginning. Um, and then you've got other founding fathers like using newspapers to sort of um, get the word out. Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay, after they had established a new, after we'd established their own government, they used newspapers to um, 
explain it to, they published the Federalist Papers in a series of newspapers and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to explain this new government until, you know, that eventually gets replaced by the constitution. Um, so we had the Mar mercantile press, but we also had like, uh, there were partisan press, which is, well, we, we very familiar with partisan press. Partisan press basically meant that the news paper, um, call it now news station or you know, television station or website. It was distinctly in favor, maybe even owned by or heavily influenced by one political party. And so they picked a side. So they were a, um, they were very, very, uh, they, they weren't trying to be objective. They were decidedly biased against one particular thing. Again, the Arkansas Gazette was also, there used to be two Little Rock papers. There was the Arkansas Democrat and the Arkansas Gazette. And the Democrat, solid, you know, back when the South was a solid Democratic, um, well, it was the solid South. There was just, everybody was a Democrat if you were from the South. Uh, that's another strange history. Once you get into the civil rights and how the South flipped from Democrat to Republican. Um, but again, we're not here to talk about that. I can bring historians on who are going to do a better job of talking about that. Um, anyway, so we had partisan press. Things roll along for decades and they settle along, settle, settle down. And then the papers, you know, like everything else, they start to mature a little bit. What they started out as is pretty simple and amateurish. You know, they, they become more refined. Um, Stuff that happens later um, is they begin to standardize what they call news. So what we would call a credible paper. And this, when I say credible paper, I can. This is an argument I can make about today when we people complain about journalists and the news, or I'm I'm doing like a little um, quotation marks by outside the microphone. You know the media. Um, there's lots of quality media out there, lots of quality journalists. There just happens to be a whole lot of other people claiming the title of journalist without actual training or under the influence of other interests still um, purporting to be, you know, quality journalism. I'm not going to complain about that yet. I'll complain about that later. Um, anyway, so we start standardizing what the definition of the news is. And more importantly, they, within newspapers, they start breaking up the different things. And this, this part gets important, too, especially when it comes around to cable news later. They would break up the paper in what's an opinion section, uh, which would be like the editorial page. Um, it's just, and if it's on the editorial page, everyone understands this is not hard news. This is the opinion of people, whether it can be the editor of the paper or people writing in letters to the editor or somebody writing an op-ed about what they think, whatever it is, everything is confined to this editorial section. Then we had hard news and then hard news is like, these are sort of definable. This thing happened at this particular, this is the who, what, when, and where, how, um, the pub at, you know, fourth and, um, Franklin, oh, I just made that up, um, burned down last night firefighters, whatever. These are definitive things. Or if it's a 
story about um, maybe some kind of law. This is a law that happened, and this is what it says, and this is what it means, and da 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 da. da. But not, but not. This is how you should feel about it. Um, once you start getting into this is how you should feel about it, you're no longer in the news. You are in opinion. Um, then you get feature news. Feature news is like your average, like your magazine. These, like, it's not hard news. Like, this is stuff that's happened, but you may be doing a feature story on, you know, this is a great place to go fishing. And this is why I like going fishing with my granddad as a kid. You know, it's a, it's just a nice story that maybe make you feel good or it's interesting. But your life isn't necessarily uh, impacted like in the way that it would be with like a hard news story. Um, and so featured news also gets referred to as soft news. And then lo and behold, um, the penny press emerges, which simply means they figured out a cheaper way to print newspapers. Um, and they made newspapers less expensive. And uh, you've got, again, now we're getting to a point, this is in the 1830s, you have rising liter literacy rates in the United States. Um, you've got um, people with more money, and so suddenly we're buying papers. And the thing here is papers start becoming more and more profitable. They, at this point, they start getting larger and more profitable. And one of the things that starts to creep in, because remember what I said, and this is, I will say this a hundred times, media companies are for-profit companies. Um, their primary goal is to make money. Uh, and they do, they get very creative in how they do that. And one of the things that's really like low hanging fruit is sensationalism. And, and, and sensationalism is exactly what most people complain. I say most people, I don't have a way to verify what most is. It's the use of exaggeration and fear and scandal. It's like fear. Like these are like hot, what I would call hot emotions. See, like if you can make someone afraid or if you can make someone angry, angry, um, you can, you exact, you use exaggeration to create fear or you use exaggeration to create scandal. And you know, you're in anger and fear very close to each other, uh, on the kind of the emotional spectrum. Like very often, one turns into the other or fear fear creates anger uh in many in many things or you've also got like sex because sex sells just all, turn on cable news just just watch any of the cable news stations and you'll see what i'm talking about um or half the uh, I, don't, I don't even i don't like i want to po point fingers but i also don't want to alienate everyone um I'll just say that everyone's guilty. Um, some are guiltier than others, though. Um, later on, though, you get the telegraph moving in. So, um, 1848, you get the telegraph. And this created um, the formation of the Associated Press. So, you, you would get... The telegraph created newswires. Uh, and newswires... The thing that made them really interesting is that it would allow information to now be instantaneously transmitted across long distances. You know, before, if 
something happened in New York and they needed to get word to South Carolina. They either had to put a dude on a train or a horse or a boat and send that message down there. So regardless of which way they did it, it took time. You can start sending stuff across the wire and then suddenly you've got almost immediate communication. And so you get the creation of the Associated Press, which is what we still have today, the AP. Uh, and the AP created a few things, and one of which is the writing style um, called the AP. Um, and it's the primary writing style for print journalism. And it's still alive and well today. Um, you can, and that's typically when people ask what I subscribe to as far as where I get my news, the Associated Press is a major one. Associated Press and Reuters are the two places I primarily get my news because they're not. They're not, uh, they're just, they're not under the corporate overlords that the other ones are who are getting, who are, they're not pushed so hard because they're a subscription service. The other news agencies subscribe to them to get their news in many cases. Um, and they're still for profit companies, but they, they don't have the same motivation for sensationalism. And so they, they, still play things pretty straight um but we've got the the thing with the ap coming around and people being able to communicate over long distances is that you also ended up creating a standardization of newspapers so again you've been in different places of the country and people talk differently and you have different colloquialisms and all these things well, if you want to be able to share news now, um, they had to start standardizing the way they would write news. And so the structure of it, the language that they would use, and so they would create things so they would be more appropriate for papers to print. And this is also when we started to begin the journalistic ideal of objectivity. Um, Objectivity is separating fact from opinion. Uh, remember, we, we still had some of these places, um, you know, the newspapers were starting to separate stuff. You had your editorial page or everything, opinion stuff, and then your hard news stuff. Objectivity is making sure there's a clear distinction that I'm not telling you how you should feel about the news. You A, a newspaper could be super critical of a um, politician. But very often that kind of criticism would come within the context of the editorial. But the hard news stuff was just laying out strictly hard news. Um, and this carried on for a long time. Uh, where it started to go off the rails is later in not broadcast. It was broadcast, but when we got cable news, uh, because even when we got broadcast, and I'll cover this later, um, there were some pretty hard rules in place that kept um, broadcasters from getting the stuff mixed up. And so they would also have to have like clear distinctions. Cable news rolls around and they start blending those. So not only am I giving you the news, but I'm also starting to tell you how to feel about it. And sometimes that was done through, I'll do a hard news story and then I'll do an opinion piece or a little insert and not tell the audience where it is and people just sort of start to go along with it 
And then I'm getting off track a little bit, but then they, you know, what happens is, and today is what happens is they, they play to their audience and they're like, Oh, we have a, an audience that has a particular, you know, conservative or liberal, whatever you want to say, uh, this is their bias. So we're going to play to that bias. We're not going to challenge that bias. if they were doing what they were supposed to be, they would be challenging that bias. But instead, they're playing to that bias, which is what we'd call confirmation bias. Uh, and so people are just getting confirmation to the thing they already want to believe, which is the exact opposite of what journalists are supposed to be doing. Um, the other thing is, and this is kind of irrelevant as far as you guys, uh, unless you're working as a journalist, is the inverted pyramid is the writing structure where you put the most important stuff at the front of the story and the least important at the end that's done for a couple of reasons primary ones newspapers were finite uh in space so if an editor needed to cut uh, stuff from a story they would just start at the bottom and work up and then you know because that's where all the least important stuff was the other part comes from the telegraph uh is the fact that those things are sometimes unreliable you know they would get drop calls for lack of a better term and so if you're putting the most important stuff through at the beginning, there was a greater likelihood that the most important stuff would get through on the other end. Um, but somewhere along this line, we came up with the like the five W's and one H, the who, what, when, where, how, and why. This is how kind of our basic standard of how we tell a story. Um, we get yellow journalism, and here again is when you kind of figure out what's going on and how you can see sort of history repeat itself. So yellow journalism is sensationalism and it's just how we focus almost entirely on sensationalism and populism to gain readership. We just play to the audience, whatever they want, we will give them whatever they want. We'll, you know, we make them a rabid audience, we'll make them angry at all the people. Like if they're already kind of angry, we're going to give them more reasons to be angrier. And again, cause you get that fever pitch going and you get them, you get them riled up and you just keep throwing meat to the, you know, wolves and just enough to keep them hungry, but never enough to get them satisfied. And, you know, you can, and you can do all, you can do all kinds of stuff, but the most important thing that they were doing is selling newspapers. And here's the thing then is now it was kind of like, let's sell newspapers, but damn the consequences. Like we're not, we're not thinking about like, what are the what are the potential unintended consequences of the actions that we're engaging in? Um, you know, it's like some dude just randomly firing a rifle up in the air. You're not paying attention to where that bullet's going to land. You're just being reckless. So this is what's going on. But again, remember, it's super, super profitable. And by the 1890s, you know, we've made it through the Civil War at this point. Um, Yellow journalism has reached its absolute peak, uh, and we've got the Hertz Pulitzer circulation wars going on. So these were the two major newspapers of that time, um, or the newspaper, the news companies. Like Hertz was kind of like the, I would, I would. He gets equated with being like the Fox News of that of that era. So we'll just say Pulitzer would be the CNN. You know, they're they're competitors. They're both trying to. Neither one of them are innocent on on this stuff. So there's not a good guy here. Um, 
but they're trying to outdo each other constantly, constantly, constantly. And so again, it's all sensationalism is exaggeration and just getting people riled up. Well, that hits a peak, uh, until something happens. There was a, those newspapers, it's, very um 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 um, it's fingers can be pointed and blame can be laid whether it's completely accurate or not that those newspapers were directly responsible for the united states getting in uh involved in the spanish-american war uh so this was you know the invasion of cuba so what was going on at that particular point was that a uh, there was tension between Spain and the United States over Cuba. Cuba and the U.S. have had a long, um, tur- turbulent history. And, again, nobody's a good guy in this scenario. But there were negotiations happening at Cuba. And the United States sent the USS Maine uh, there to Havana to kind of is a so it's a battleship. I mean, it's a warship. Uh, if it's a battleship or not, it was a warship. Um, and it was anchored in Havana Harbor. And then in the middle of the night, it exploded. Just anchored, and so they don't really know if it was, or at least at this particular point in time, they didn't really know if it was like the boiler exploded or something. Just it had a mechanical problem that went and then ignited its you know, its munitions. What they printed was that it hit a land or a mine, not a landmine, but a, um, you know, an underwater mine that caused the explosion and caused it to sink and caused the loss of life for the sailors on board. Which almost immediately uh, set the wheels in motion for war. But it was just simply because it was, you know, it was bad journalism or it was irresponsible journalism. Um, later on, we get the three great newspapers. So objectivity starts getting bigger and bigger, and we, we start getting what we would consider the quality journalism. So when journalism starts hitting its heyday, and the, the three um, the three big newspapers that come out of that time, and by the, incidentally, all three are still around today. Uh, the Gray Lady, the New York Times, comes around in 1896. The Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal, 1889, and the Christian Science Monitor in 1908. All three are still around today, and I would you know they have their own thing. They all have their own problem, but they're still. I would still take one of those over a cable station any day, any day. Um, so what eventually happens is after the whole bombing of the main or the bombing or the, the deal with the main, uh, snafu, the newspaper editors, the quality newspapers, put together these what they would they call the seven canons of journalism. These aren't the standard so much anymore. The Associated Press has their own uh, version of this now. And this is where I would say, how do you determine the difference between a quality journalistic outlet and a low budget 
cheap imitation. It's their standards that which they uphold uh, and they hold themselves to. Uh, so in the Seven Canons Journalism, uh, this was founded by the American Society of Newspaper Editors in response to all the sensationalism. So basically, just sort of imagine like all the BS that you, you put up with now and then suddenly like these these kind of major media outlets kind of come forward kind of as a unified whole and say, you know what, you're right. We have not been doing our job. Things are out of control. The government's out of control because the media is out of control and everything's out of control. Every, and so we're going to reestablish a foothold and, and this is these are the principles that we're going to live and die by. Uh, the first one was responsibility. Journalists must always consider the public's welfare. So we don't just print anything because there are consequences to the words that we put out into the public. Two, freedom of the press. Uh, that's kind of what this one's all about, this whole episode. First Amendment rights are to be guarded as vital and unquestionable. So this is the hill that journalists should live and die on. Like, there is no... It's one of the... It's that rule of... I absolutely... You know, I will fight you over your... You know, your beliefs, but I will die for your right to say them. You know, it's that. That's where we seem to be really having a problem these days because people are... I don't know, I'm going to cancel culture, but good. Yeah. Anyway. Ugh. Independence. Independent from sources, politics, and advertising is essential. This is the thing. Quality journalism is supposed to be independent from all potential influences. It's supposed to be independent from the advertisers who are funding them. We know they're not. Uh, it, they're supposed to be independent from the politicians who are influencing them. We know they're not. Or at least many of them are. And the other thing with the newspapers is there would be structures in place that would help self safeguard the journalist uh, from some of those corrosive influences. Uh, so like in a newspaper, like the publisher who is in charge of the business affairs of the paper, you know, that person doesn't really get to hang out in the newsroom because um, the managing editor is the one who actually takes care of that and so the publisher is basically supposed to you know stay out of the news and so it keeps those kind of undue influences out this keeps your you know your marketing department from telling your journalists that they can you know, they need to go cover this one story for this one company because you know they spend this much money a month with us or that you just need to kind of overlook that one story because that one you know company is an advertiser or whatever or that we don't want to criticize a certain politician because a we have a rabid fan base who love that politician, and so to criticize them would be to alienate our audience. That's what you're also not supposed to do. You're supposed to stick to sincerity, truthfulness, and accuracy. These are the three qualities that are the foundation of all journalism. Sincerity, truthfulness, and accuracy. We tell the truth and we tell it and everything about, you know, we've been talking about lately is about truth. We present the facts as we understand them in their proper context. Impartiality. Uh, news reports should be free from opinion of bias of any kind. We don't like my rule is if, if I hear a talking head or read a story that's trying to tell me how to feel about a news story, then I realize I'm at that point, you're not really reading news or consuming news. You're consuming propaganda. You're consuming a commercial. 
Um, six, fair play. Opposing views should be solicited on public issues and accusations. Papers should publish prompt and complete corrections of mistakes. So again, the whole thing I've been talking about, you should be able to challenge uh, status quo. And this is one of the things I really like about the new sort of podcast landscape is you legitimately have people that are getting on there and having a chance to talk and then they can bring someone over who has a different point of view and um, give them an opportunity to talk. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on the Rogan thing, the Joe Rogan thing for right now. I, I would say he historically has done a fairly good job of that. Over time, and specifically when we're talking about COVID stuff, he developed very strong um, kind of opinions on from his own um, examining of the research that's out there um, and the people he talked to. He'd come to very um, defined, uh, a very well-defined belief, and he would bring guests on to support that belief. Um, the problem was I didn't really see him doing a, a, that much of bringing on opposing views. Like he brought on like Sanjay Gupta from CNN, but he didn't really seem to be bringing him on to listen as he much brought him on to trying to argue with him. And so, and that's what I see from in the cable news world. Like they're not like when they do bring somebody on that has an opposing view, it's not to try to seek understanding. It's try to seek dominance and that's confirmation bias and that's not what we want that's not fair play that's not uh soliciting a, you know that's not approaching a, a an, an argument or a scenario with the belief that there's a chance that i'm wrong and i, and I want to listen to someone smarter than me give me an argument that might convince me to you know go the other direction uh number seven decency Papers should avoid deliberate pandering to vicious instincts such as details of crime and vice. Stay out of the smut. Just, you know, the whole kind of the point of newspapers from the beginning, the free press, was to create a well-informed electorate. You know, so if we are a self-governing uh, republic, a democratic republic, then the people making you know, the decisions in the ballot box need to be as well-informed as possible. And when they're as well-informed as possible, they will make well-informed voting choices. And, you know, I think you can watch the typical political discourse today and know we're probably not getting that. Um, and that's kind of where we are. I think I'm, I'm, just, I'm just going to go on the rest of this. I'm looking at a PowerPoint, by the way, while I'm doing all this. That's what I would talk about in class, but uh, nothing really, like, nothing worth going into as far as this is concerned. Um, and I seem to be like right at bumping over my normal hour. So that's kind of it. Um, History of the newspapers started out with, you know, dude in Boston getting shut down for accusing the governor of sleeping with his daughter-in-law jumps to John Peter Zinger who gets shut down for calling out the governor of New York for being a douchebag and then getting exonerated and you know precedent set for hey uh 
in this world, we get to tell the truth. In this land, in this country, we get to tell the truth. We get to criticize our government. Um, so by all means, um, criticize. But then we get the, you know, the history of journalism. And again, it ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. They figure out how to make it profitable, and then, the, and then the, it runs away. It happened with broadcast. Um, it's happened with newspapers. It's, hap- it happens, it's happening with the internet right now. It always happens. Uh, and it hits a crescendo. Crescendo? 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 It hits its climax, and then basically everything falls apart. And they rebuild, and they lick their wounds. They're like, all right, my bad. Yep, we just about destroyed the country again. Let's try this again. And so here we are. Um, we're, in, we're in a point of evolution within the media landscape. Um, new things are replacing old things. And much of the new things don't hold to the the new ones don't have the history to learn the lessons that the old ones did and so we wait and see we wait and see all right crew i'm gonna call it a day i've been talking for far too many hours for it's time. It's a beautiful day, actually, here at the boat. It's sunny. It's like sunny and 70 degrees, and I am about to start uh, the process of getting dive certified. Scuba diving. Do scuba diving. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna hang up here, and I'm gonna go get fitted for a wetsuit because I start. I start. I start the process next month, and that's a little terrifying. Um, I can talk about that later. Um, it's not terrifying. It's kind of exciting. Uh, it's a little terrifying. Anyway, all right, all right, my friends, my crew, uh, my people. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world. And uh, if nobody else is rooting for you, I am. So go have a good one. One, two, three, four.